Well, good morning, everybody. If, if, if it felt like worship was short and I'm up here early, I got to be honest with you, we're kind of making an accommodation for me. So if you, if you haven't gotten enough worship yet, we'll worship some more in just a little bit. I have to drive to Oklahoma City to catch a plane to go to a pastor's conference. I'm catching one of those planes with a sunroof. Um, so pray for me this afternoon, but I've got to jet out here real fast in just a few moments, and then we'll, we'll worship again. So it's a little bit of an unusual schedule for our service. We're in a series right now called Red Letters, and to be completely honest with you, Red Letters is going to a dark place today. Um, in fact, this part of Jesus' life is rarely ever preached about. It's been interesting for me to read ministers through the years, and not just, you know, current ministers, but maybe ministers from 100 and 200 years ago, to, as they've written about how, how a lot of times we stay away from this particular part of Jesus' story. But before we get into dealing with it, let me just say this to you, that, that Jesus coming into our world was part of an elaborate plan. People sometimes who are on the outside looking in, maybe that are not students of the Bible or whatever, they will look at Jesus dying on the cross and they'll figure it happened something like this. Jesus was a religious man. Maybe he was a good leader, a good teacher. He was popular for a while, but he got himself on the wrong side of the powers that were and got himself crucified. That's the idea that a lot of people seem to have. But the fact of the matter is nothing can be further from the truth. Because think about this. Whenever you imagine or you see a picture of Jesus dying on the cross, it's not that something went terribly wrong. It is that something went terribly right. It was part of an elaborate plan of God. I remember when Mel Gibson did his movie, The Passion of the Christ, there was a lot of, there was a lot of tender feelings about people groups feeling that perhaps they were going to be targeted for, and being blamed for, for putting Jesus on the cross. And there was a question, well, who was it who was responsible for, for cruci crucifying Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? And sometimes I'll even hear well-intentioned Christians say, we crucified Jesus, or we're responsible for crucifying Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, all of those are wrong. It, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the Romans, and we didn't have the power to put him on the cross. Certainly, he died for our sins. But if you want to know who put Jesus on the cross, the answer is from the Bible. It was God. It was the Father who put Jesus on the cross. See, Jesus died as part of an elaborate plan of God. It was not that something went terribly wrong. It was something went terribly right. There's a woman in, in the Bible. The Bible doesn't even mention her name. I mean, she lived a thousand years before Jesus. But I love the way she, she, she describes how, how God is at work in our world. She says it for me better than anybody else. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. She said, all of us must die eventually, which is true. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. I love these words. But God does not just sweep life away. Aren't you glad to know that? God just does not sweep life away. I mean, if you consider the fact that all of us are sinners, and we just talked about God's elaborate plan to bring us back to him, the, the cost that it cost him, it cost him the brutalization of his one and only son. If I had been God, I would have let this world spin out into a black hole somewhere. But she said, God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back 
when we've been separated from him. A paraphrase that I love a great deal says, God dreams up plans to bring the rebels home. Could I just take a moment and stop for it? Because some of you, you have a hard time coming to church because in the back of your mind somewhere, whether it's just the way you've thought about God or maybe, maybe you had some intersection with religion that left you with this impression, but when you walk into church, it's like, wow, God is just hunting me. He's looking for me. He's just waiting to get his hands on me. And if God, if God can ever put me in a corner, he's going to hit me with a hammer for all the things that I've done wrong. Do you realize that this is the God of the Bible? God does not sweep life away. He's not got his cosmic broom out looking for an opportunity to sweep you out with the trash. God doesn't sweep life away. We do that sometimes. We sweep people aside. We give up on people. We sweep people out and say, okay, you're not part of my world anymore, but God doesn't do that. God doesn't sweep life away. Instead, think about this. God is up in heaven thinking about ways to bring rebels home. If you're a rebel today, don't get the idea that God hates you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. God is up in heaven working on plans to bring you back. Well, the ultimate plan of course, is Jesus. And just simply stating it, the plan to bring Jesus into our world goes something like this. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, God delivered the world over to them. He, gave, he made them perfect. He put them in a perfect environment with no suffering. He said, I've got one rule. Don't break it. If you break it, you're going to know the dark side. You'll be a sinner. They broke the rule. And on top of that, they had you and me. We were born with sin natures. And beyond that, we ourselves are sinners. And so, and, and here's the thing. This is the one thing I wish I, could, I wish I knew how to get across. In our Western way of thinking, especially our American way of thinking, we, th- we have the idea that God is up in heaven as kind of the, the grandfatherly, aw shucks type, everybody play nice, everybody do the best you can, I grade on the curve, and I sort of let everybody in and everybody gets a trophy. But that's God. What we don't understand about God is that God is infinitely perfect. He is infinitely just. And unlike you and I, because see, we we know some of God's goodness, but we also have the dark side. We have ways to explain and kind of fudge, so to speak, as we used to say in Texas. We have ways to say, well, it'll be okay. God can't do that. If God were to sweep one sin under the carpet, he would be less than God, and he cannot do that. So God has to have a way. He has got to have a way to bring you and me back, because we've already seen. The woman said God is devising up ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. Well, what has separated us from God? Our sin has separated us from God. We're not perfect. We're not good. We have problems. In fact, the Bible says there's none, not one righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned, and God can't sweep that sin under the carpet. Every sin must be paid for. So what does God do? He gets somebody to pay the price for sin. Okay, one of us. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear some well-intentioned person saying, Jesus took my place on the cross. Jesus didn't take my place on the cross. Because if God had said, hey, I need a volunteer. I need somebody who will pay for the sins of the world. I could put my hand up and God says, sorry, Mark, you can't pay for the sins of the world because you're not perfect. You're a sinner yourself. You can't even pay for your own sin. Somebody's got to pay for sin who's not a sinner. 
You know, we celebrate Christmas, Jesus coming into our world. Well, what God did when he brought Jesus into our world is he brought someone into our world who was both God and human. Jesus was not a man who became God. He was God who became human. And you ladies are going to love this. This is more theology than you want to know, but from what we can piece together from the Scripture, the sin nature, the predisposition toward wrong, is passed down by the Father. Every woman in here said, I knew it all along. You need the theology on that. Which is why Jesus had to be virgin born. Born of Mary and born of God. And there are those that shrink back and say, well, that's biologically impossible for a human being to get into the world without a human father, human mother. The first two human beings got into the world without either a human mother or human father. See, what happens is we start making God behave according to the rules that he set up in the first place. He can do anything he wants to do. So he brought his son into the world God and human at the same time, so that something could happen. And this, and again, I, I don't like to give you theological terms because they're, they're over my head most of the time. But there's an old theological term that's called imputation. It's really important for you and me to understand what imputation is all about. It's simply this, that when Jesus Christ came into our world, we were not only saved by his death, we were saved by his life. He did the one thing that you and I couldn't do. He was perfect for 33 years. Satan threw every temptation at him that he could throw at any human being, and yet Jesus fouled off every pitch. He never did succumb. He never sinned. So we're not only saved by his death, we're saved by his life. I'll explain why. Because at the moment that you and I accept Jesus Christ, here's the way God looks at it. God clicks and drags our sin over to Jesus Christ. He clicks and drags Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life, over to you and me. How can an imperfect person like me go to heaven? When I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, he took my sins upon him. His righteousness is placed upon me as a gift so that when God opens up the books, I love this, I wish I knew how to preach, when we get to heaven and we're judged and God opens up the books and your name is there, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, below that it will say, see Jesus Christ. All that stuff you're worried about, you, you, listen, we don't even have double jeopardy in our world. Double jeopardy is not even part of our court system. You can't pay for the same sin twice. Your sin was paid for by Jesus. You're not going to have to pay for it if you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is my whole point. This was God's plan. God, God dreams up ways to bring the rebels home. Rebels like you and me. So then, what was the moment of triumph? If you were to look at Jesus' life and look at the fact that he, he culminated and he fulfilled God's plan to bring us back into a relationship with God, when did it happen? I think a lot of us who are Christ followers, we, we, we love the cross. And, and I'll be talking about that on Palm Sunday. And we would imagine when Jesus died on the cross. Maybe it was at the, that, that moment when he, he said, it is finished. There would be some of us who would say, yeah, that's, what, that's, that's when he won. Others of us would say, no, I, I think it was that resurrection Sunday morning, Easter. I think that when Jesus came out of the grave, that's when he won. Well, if it was a win, all you would have to do is to look at the person he defeated when he thought he was whipped. Because, see, I want to say to you today, I don't think that the victory, the triumph happened at the cross. I don't think the triumph happened 
on resurrection morning. I think it had already long happened before that. Sometimes, and, and now, you see, we're not only going to talk about Jesus, we're going to talk about you and me because we're going to have moments like Jesus had. File this away. Sometimes moments of triumph don't feel like moments of triumph. In fact, there, there are going to be moments when you win, and yet your emotions are going to be taking a kicking at that time. And anybody looking at you from the outside would think, wow, this, she's not going to make it, or he's not going to make it. But there's something that happens in that seminal moment. There's something that happens in that, there's a tipping point at that moment. I mean, some of you know what this is like even in business. Everybody else looks at you and thinks you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you're never going to make a go of it, but you know you have passed a key moment. Sometimes moments of triumph don't look like moments of triumph, at least until later, and we get a look at it and we see how it works. I mean, forgive, forgive the reference to Texas. I, I grew up in Texas, and, and uh, it's as crazy as it sounds, and when we, we, we cycled through history, as, as I went through public school in Texas, one year we would do world history, one year we would do U.S. history, and then we would spend a whole year in Texas history, three times. We had it drilled into us. That's why we're all insufferable. I, I remember I used to live in Houston when I first graduated from college. The, the war for Texas independence was fought in 1836. And, and there was one battle that was just a rout. It was the, it was the, it was the battle that Tex, when Texas won the war. It was in a little, little community or a little town outside of Houston called San Jacinto. I remember all the time I was in Houston, I don't think I ever went to San Jacinto. People who came to visit me, nobody ever said, can you take me to San Jacinto? Most people have never heard of San Jacinto, even though it was where the overwhelmingly decisive battle was fought, seemingly. <laughs> but there's a little mission down in Bayer County that everybody wants to see. People come from all over the world to see this tiny little mission in San Antonio. You know what's unusual about that? Everybody died there. That's a fact. They all died. I mean, according to legend, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the story is told that William Barrett Travis, the commander there at the Alamo, realized that they were, they were, they were dealing with overwhelming odds. There was no way they were going to escape if they continued to fight there. And so, according to legend, he drew a line in the sand with his saber, and he said, if, 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 if you want to leave, you can leave, but if you're going to stay here and fight for God in Texas, and I still get misty eyed when I hear, hear that language, you know, if, if you're going to stay here and fight for God in Texas, walk across the line. And according to legend, everybody walked across the line, and even Colonel Bowie, who was sick and on a cot, asked to be carried across the line. And they all stayed there, and they fought, and they died, and they bought time. And isn't it interesting, after all this time, nobody wants to go to San Jacinto, where there was an overwhelming victory. Everybody wants to go to the place where everybody died, because why? Sometimes victories are won at moments that don't feel like wins. It was that fighting at the Alamo that bought the time and won the war. Well, let me take you now to Jesus last week. By now it's Thursday night. He had ridden into the city triumphantly, he had been with friends before that in Bethany, but now on this Thursday night, he's met with his disciples. They've had the Passover supper. 
the disciples have been arguing over who was the greatest, and Jesus showed them that if you want to be great, that you're everyone's servant. He took a towel and water and washed their feet. And then at the end of the supper, he had said to them, We're gonna, I'm going to show you something else. And he took some bread and he took some juice. And he said, this now is going to be a supper in which the bread represents my body, which is broken for you, and the juice represents my blood, which is shed. And by the way, after all these years, we still do the same thing, and we'll be doing that on Palm Sunday, and we'll also be doing it on Good Friday. And when all of that was finished, they left that room, and Jesus went out with 11 of his disciples. I say 11 because Judas the 12th had gone to get the police to arrest Jesus. I, I wish I knew how to, how to set the scene up for you because it must have been an unusual scene that night. The city is festive. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people that aren't normally in the city are in this city because it's Passover time and everybody's celebrating and families are getting together and it's a, it's a really special time. But in the midst of all this, Jesus now is beginning to feel the weight of what he is going to go through. He takes his 11 disciples and he goes to a place called Gethsemane, which means oil press. It's a little garden. Let me read it to you. This is in Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over to pray. He took Peter, James, and John, and now look at this. He became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, let's not go through that too quickly because what's, what's happening here is 33 years of Jesus' life, being on God's agenda, on God's plan, are now coming down to the moments where he's going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. It is the beginning of this whole thing. In fact, my personal feeling is, from what I can pick up from the Scriptures, is the sin load is now beginning to be dumped on him. He is beginning to feel it. He is beginning to carry it. And notice what Jesus said. First of all, he said he was anguished. That means a debilitating depression and sorrow. Some of you know what it's like to deal with depression. And you, you have people in your world that don't understand what it's like. They don't know how it can come out of nowhere. They don't know how it, how it can just take over your life. Isn't it good to know that whenever you pray and you talk to Jesus, he knows what it's like to go through crippling depression. Then the next word is distressed. That's an unusual word. It means it's the idea of being away from home. I mean, Jesus was from heaven. And in this loneliness in the garden, he felt a long way from home, and some of you know what that's like because you're on the road a lot. Maybe you're a road warrior, or as I've met some of you who have been in Afghanistan or Iraq for a long period of time, and you know what that feels like. Jesus, was, he, he felt all alone, a long way from home. And then finally, he said he was crushed with grief. The, this is more than you want to know probably, but the Greek word for crushed there has the prefix peri. We, we get our word perimeter or similar words, it means he, was, he said, I'm being crushed or pressed by grief on every side. And so overwhelmed was he that he just said to the three disciples, stay with me. Oh, what's going on now? 
I mean, what has changed from when Jesus was with, with the disciples in the Last Supper and he was, you know, when, when he was teaching them and telling them and trying to get them ready? What has changed in the few minutes from the time that he has met with them till when he has gone to the garden and all of a sudden all this huge crushing weight is settling in on him? Well, first of all, I think the load of sin is settling on him and he has a very clear picture of what he's about to go through. He's God. He can look into the future. He sees the nails. He sees the thorns beaten into his scalp. He sees his beard being pu- pulled out, the spit in his face, the cat of nine tails that he'll be whipped with that will actually pull the skin off of his body. He is looking at all that, but beyond that, he is realizing that God is going to put sin upon him and turn from him, turn his back on him. And the second thing that is happening is you can imagine Satan is doing everything in the world. He's throwing everything in the book at him to keep him from going to the cross. If he walks away, God doesn't lose. If he walks away, we lose. Now I want to take you to Matthew 26, 39 because these are the red letters that are going to comprise our talk today. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus, the Bible says, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, Jesus is human. In fact, he wouldn't have been human if he hadn't prayed this. I mean, who in his right mind would want to go through what Jesus was about to go through? And remember, I wish I knew how to communicate this. It's not just the physical suffering that Jesus is going to go through. Here's what's going to happen to him. For God to judge our sin on Christ for the time that Jesus is in the cross, God actually has to become Christ's enemy. This This is the one who has known God in perfection all, all throughout eternity. And while he's on the cross, pressed into the compendium of those six hours, God will actually turn on him and become his enemy, and he will know what it's like to feel hell and feel rejection and to feel separation from God. No wonder Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Sometime in your life and my life, we're going to have a cup. We're going to face something that we're not going to want to face. And we're going to say the same thing. God, I don't want this. It's at this moment that I believe the victory is won. Because Jesus prays this prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless... Not as I will, but as you will. As I close out today's talk, I want to just bring us to a point, and I want to try my best to explain something I've tried to explain three times this weekend, and I'm going to try to explain it one more time. It it is a challenge for me to, to, to get my arms around this. When you look at Jesus saying, Father, if it's your will, I'll do this, the question might be asked, how could it be God's will for Jesus to suffer 
the way he had to suffer. And the reason why that's an important question to us is, is because sometimes we may go through a difficult time and we may have a sense that it's God's will and we could say, how could it be God's will for me to stay in a marriage when I'm unhappy? Why could it be God's will for me to you know, not give up on my kids and walk away? Well, could I make the point that it was definitely, in, 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 an, in an open context, it would never be God's will for Jesus to suffer the way he suffered. There was a factor that bore on that, and that factor was a broken world. And God's plan came together at a point where the world was broken, and in that intersection of a broken world and God's plan, Jesus had to suffer, and he had to sacrifice. And sometimes it's going to be that way in your life and my life, because we're going to have to have a cup to drink and we're going to, everything within us is going to want to walk away. But God's world is coming together. God's plan is coming together with a broken world. And we pray Jesus' prayer. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. When you and I come to that place, there are four things that will get us through, and I'll be finished with the talk. The first one is, I trust God. You know, when Jesus looked forward at what he was going to experience on the cross, no doubt it was a horrible thing to look at. And yet Jesus said, Father, I trust you. I know that you have a plan here, and I trust your plan. The second thing is Jesus said, I understand this is a broken world, and I accept it. I know it's a broken world. The third thing is healing comes not when I can get God to do my will, but when God can get me to do his will. You know, this too, number four. There is a place where everything that happens is God's will. That's called heaven. And we're not there yet. Can I just say this to you? I don't know where this message is going to find you. I mean, obviously, we're celebrating the fact that our Savior was willing to stay there and take the suffering of the cross for you and me that God's plan might be such that we could have a way to have a relationship with God. My guess is today some of you are staring at a cup and you want to walk away, but you have a sense that God's plan and God's will is for you to stay there. Could I just say this? It's in the moments that we stay with God's plan when it's difficult that we really begin to change the world. And my prayer is that God will take this message and craft it in such a way that it will speak directly to your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for what we've learned from your word. God, I just ask you that wherever this message finds us, if it finds us at a moment of difficult in our own personal Gethsemane, that we will trust you, that we will remember that if, if suffering is part of our situation or if sacrifice is part of our situation, you're not out to harm us. It's just that you are doing great things in a broken world, and you may allow us to be part of that. God, I pray that you would give us strength to go through our own personal Gethsemanes. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me for just one more moment? It could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I, I don't know for sure if I have a relationship with God. Well, it's been great today for us to realize that the way that any of us have, has a relationship with, with God is through the plan that God 
put together in giving his son to die for our sins. And a few moments ago, I talked to you about how that when Jesus died, it's not just his death that saves us, but it's his life. His perfect life is transferred to our account, and our sins are placed upon him. And the Bible tells us that it's a gift. Let me, read, let me give you a, a verse of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, It is by grace that you are saved, through faith, through believing, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Going to heaven, it's not part, you, it's not, you don't get it because you join a church or because you're good. You get it because you accept Jesus' gift. He died for you, and he wants you to be God's daughter, God's son. If you're ready to invite Jesus to come into your life, I want to give you a prayer to pray. It's just, these are slow, wor- slow words so that you can think about them. It's not the words that matter. What matters is what you mean in your heart. But if you're ready to invite Jesus to come into your life, you can do it right now. You ready? Dear God, I agree that I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for me. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.